Good morning again. Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts 13. Acts chapter 13. We've been here since two years before the Lord came. We've been in this chapter for a while, and, and if you've been studying with us and following along, you can see why, because it's so rich. You know, the Word of God is just absolutely exhilarating. It's amazing. It's life-changing. It's exciting. And this chapter, I don't know if I want to give it up. It's just been hard, and, uh, but it's good. And uh, so we're in 13 again. Just a quick recap. We are currently working our way through the book of Acts in this study called Acts. And we've been examining Paul's sermon to the Galatians at Pisidian Antioch. That's what we've been studying in chapter 13. This is this, we, we first studied his, you know, his uh, sermon at Cyprus. You know, he came to Cyprus with Barnabas and he preached there and dealt with Elimus and all these different things. And now he's, he's been in Pisidian Antioch in the text. And that's what we've been looking at, his sermon to these Galatian believers in this Roman province. Uh, in the sermon, Paul boldly proclaimed that Jesus is Israel's promised and long-awaited Messiah makes total sense that he would do it. Even though he's in a Greek province, there are Jewish synagogues there and a high number of Jews, more, more Jews in Pisidian Antioch probably than anywhere else in Galatia, possibly. There were thousands and thousands there. And so he's in this synagogue and he's been proclaiming Jesus Christ as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And Paul has, through chapter 13, what we've examined so far, he's presented three proofs to support his case, to support his sermon. He's backing his words with proofs. The first proof is historical proof. The Messiah was to come through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and through the bloodline or lineage of King David. Jesus did those things, and, and Paul has, he has preached these historical proofs. The second thing is prophetic proof. According to the scriptures, Israel's true Messiah was to be announced and then identified by a special prophet. And John the Baptist was that special prophet who did those two things. According to the scriptures, Israel's true Messiah was to be rejected, crucified, killed, and buried for three days. Well, guess what? Paul has proclaimed that, you know, the prophet John the Baptist came and that Jesus also was rejected, crucified, killed, and buried for three days. Prophetic proof. And then three, probably the real key, and this would be that centerpiece of apostolic preaching. The apostles preached Jesus like crazy, but they preached the resurrection. They gave resurrection proof. So three is resurrection proof. According to the scriptures, again, Israel's true Messiah was to be raised or resurrected from the dead. Paul pointed his listeners to Psalm 2-7, Isaiah 55-3, and Psalm 16-10, which all testify to the resurrection of Israel's Messiah. He also pointed his listeners to the 500-plus witnesses whom Jesus revealed himself to, interacted with, for 40 days after his resurrection and before his ascension. These are the things that we've studied. The historical proof that Paul put forward, the prophetic proof that he put forward, and the resurrection proof that he put forward. And in a really cool and amazing, awesome, I could never pull it off way, he has presented the gospel through this whole thing. He's, he's, he's you know, he, he weaved the gospel into this whole presentation. He's always talking about the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's really amazing how he's done this. He has covered the primary facets of the gospel, which are the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
in verses 38 and 39. And that's where we're going to pick up. We're going to pick up at 38. In verses 38 and 39, Paul is going to drive it all home. His massive point is coming now in these verses. Okay, he's been building, he's been preaching, historical, prophetic, resurrection proof, all of these things. He's given them a historical survey, all these things that we've studied, all these things that you'll read if you look at 13. It gets to this point here where he bangs it all home. This is it. This is his point. This is the application or the big point. Actually, this would be the big point of the sermon. The application is coming. So in 38 39, that's where he's going to drive it all home. He is going to give the Galatians, okay, at Pisidian Antioch, Greeks and Jews, he is going to give them the point and the purpose of the gospel, which is what actually makes the gospel the good news. Okay? He's going to just nail it here. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah, the Messiah to the world, came and lived and died and was buried and then resurrected for a purpose. Jesus accomplished something through what he did and Paul is about to announce what he accomplished and what he offers, okay? That's where we're headed here this morning. Here comes the big driving point. Look at 38 and 39, and before we engage, I will pray one more time. Father, if we miss what you are about to say in these coming verses, we miss the whole thing. Jesus came and and did what he did for an expressed purpose. And if we miss why he came and did what he did, we're sunk, we're lost. And so reveal it to us today, Lord. May we not just hear the point to the gospel, may we believe it. And you're going to have to cause us to do that because as sinners we don't have the ability to believe on our own. We have to be drawn in by you. We have to be illuminated by you. We have to be regenerated by you. And Holy Spirit, we beg that you would do that. And to the saints who are saved, may they be edified and built up through these truths, these foundational, fundamental truths of the gospel. These are the most important things that the world will ever hear. That we will hear today and this week Speak to us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You ready? If you're ready, say I'm ready. Right? Got the starter pistol. We're off. 38. Let it be known to you, therefore. Paul is saying, I've said all that I've said. I've talked about these proofs. I've talked about the death, burial, and resurrection right here. Let it be known to you, therefore. Here is my point, is what he says. He says, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And then he continues, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. There it is. There it is. 
He said everything he said to get to this climactic moment. Jesus came and did what he did for this purpose right here. Anyone ever asked you, why did Jesus come and do what he did? This is why he came and did what he did. To offer forgiveness of sin and to free you from the bondage to the law. Bringing it all together, Paul said, through Jesus Christ is forgiveness. My paraphrase, he's bringing it all together. Here's how I look at it. Here's how I would say it to you. Through Jesus Christ is forgiveness of sins and freedom. Freedom. Forgiveness and freedom are what Jesus secured for his people through his life, through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. Forgiveness and freedom are what he offers to lost sinners, both Jewish and Gentile. That, my friends, is good news. Why is it good news? Because we are all enemies of our Creator God. We are all rebels. We have all committed divine treason and are worthy of death and hell. But Jesus made a way for people like you and I to be delivered and restored to God forever. Through him, we can have forgiveness of sin and be freed from the law which condemns us as lawbreakers. Now, Paul also mentioned two more truths that are extremely important at the beginning of verse 39. Okay? Jesus came and did what he did. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He was buried. He rose from the dead that sinners may be forgiven and freed. And then he includes these two things that are just incredibly important. He basically said, who can receive the forgiveness of the Lord and how they can receive it? He didn't just say he came and did all these things and this is what he offers. He also instructed them on how they could receive what Jesus accomplished and what he offers. It's right there in the text. You see the word who? Oh, actually, yeah, the who. Is it the who? No, it's not the who. It's everyone. The who. Who can receive? Let me back up. The who that can receive this forgiveness and freedom is marked in the text as everyone. Don't think for a moment I'm a universalist. Not everyone will get saved. But everyone includes Jews, Gentiles, and people from every tribe and tongue. This offer of grace and salvation and delivery and freedom and forgiveness, it goes out to the world, man. We proclaim it to the world. Every type of person, every background, every color, every language, every tongue, every, you know, every ethnic background. In Revelation 7-9, which is one of my favorite passages, we, we see the elect, the church, the true people of God, the true Israel. We see them as a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And so anyone or everyone. Who's it for? Everyone, every type. From all tribes 
tongues and people and languages. The church is diverse, man, big. Lots of people from all over the world in Kenya and, and China and Iran. One million Muslims a year convert to Christianity. It's amazing. One million. No wonder they're so ticked off and blow up our churches. God saves every type of person. It's his plan. It's not a strategy. These things were foreordained in eternity past that he would save people from every tribe and tongue. It's amazing. Everyone. The how. How do they get saved? The how is represented in the word believes. Do you see it in there in your Bible? Believes. Everyone who what? Believes. He is speaking of faith. The forgiveness and freedom of Jesus Christ must be received by faith and everyone who receives Jesus Christ by faith shall be forgiven and freed. That's what your scripture teaches. That's what your Bible teaches. That's what this text says. Everyone who believes, not everyone apart from belief, no, no, everyone who exercises faith, everyone who believes. Big question. Coming right out of the gate, firing both barrels at you. Don't care. Most important thing you'll ever hear in your life. Big question. Have you been forgiven and freed by Jesus Christ through faith in his person and work? Have you? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe what the Apostle Paul has said about him in this chapter? Do you believe in the testimony of God's holy word which makes lucidly clear that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father less through him? Do you believe? Are you a person of faith today, right where you sit? Are you clinging to Jesus is he your only hope? If you do praise the Lord, God has been gracious and merciful to you. He has been. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, then you are still in your sins. You must repent. Turn away from all self-effort. You cannot earn your way and you cannot save yourself. Your good deeds are but filthy rags before God. There are no scales in heaven where your good deeds will be weighed. You cannot earn your way, period. You cannot earn for yourself the righteousness that is needed to inherit the kingdom of heaven. You have no righteousness of your own. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's the one that obeyed the law perfectly. He's the one that earned a perfect righteous standing before God. And you must receive his righteousness by faith. Unless you become clothed in his perfect righteousness, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. Never. 
Jesus said that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees if we are to see the kingdom of heaven. What did he mean? The Pharisees were the most religious and good works, you know, oriented people on the face of the earth 2,000 years ago. They were so religious and good works oriented that if a sprig of mint popped up in a crack in their yard, they would pluck off a tenth of it and put it in the offering box at church. You've probably read the scripture that says they give a tenth of their cumin. And What do you think they did? Even if something just popped up. We spray Roundup on the stuff that pops up. They saw it. They analyzed it to see if it was something that was edible. Give it the old sniff test. Ah, That's mint. Better pluck off 10% and put that in the offering box over at the temple. These guys were beyond religious. Beyond good works oriented. Nobody in the history of the world has been as religious and good works oriented as these men. They were in a class of their own. They dressed differently, spoke differently, worshipped differently. Everything about them was religious. According to human wisdom and understanding, the Pharisees were easily the most righteous, according to human perception, the most righteous and worthy people of them all of all time. But Jesus said, nope. According to God's standard of righteousness, they fall short. The Pharisees may have been good at giving and obeying rules, but they were still fallen sinners like you and I. On their best day, they fell a million miles short. So Jesus used them as an example. You think that they are righteous and worthy, and I say on their best day, they are a million miles short. You need, is what Jesus said, paraphrasing, you need a type of righteousness that exceeds theirs. My righteousness. Because only my righteousness, Christ would say, is perfect. Perfect righteousness. That's what you need to see the kingdom. Not something like theirs that they're trying to produce through doing all these great things. Even in their best day, they fall way short. You need my righteousness. Those who repent of their self-effort... You know, forsake their good works and trying to... I'm not saying that good works aren't good. Faith should produce good works. Good works does not produce faith. But those who are depending on themselves must repent of that sin. They must come to this realization that no matter how good they think they are or whatever good they can do, they still fall short. You think of the Pharisees who were far more religious than we could ever imagine being and they were nowhere near the kingdom. They would never see it. Because they did not have the righteousness of Christ. We must repent of our sin, of our self-righteousness and our pursuits in these things. We need the righteousness of Christ. We can't earn for ourselves a righteousness. If you're depending on yourself rather than on Jesus, God commands you to repent and believe in Jesus Christ right at this very moment. Not tomorrow. Now. Now. God is serious. And he is not to be trifled with. Hebrews 10.29 says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And then in 10.31 of Hebrews, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Friend, you must repent and put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ. Believe that He lived. Believe that He died. Believe that He was buried. Believe that He rose from the grave to secure for you forgiveness of sin and freedom from the law which condemns you as a lawbreaker. Haven't you lied? Haven't you lusted? Haven't you worshipped idols? You're the biggest idol you know. You worship yourself. You've tried to earn your way. Admit these things. Quit playing games. Repent of these things. And turn to Jesus Christ who alone can save you. Now as we move to verses 40 to 41, we will see that Paul closed his sermon with a warning against rejecting the salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ. Look at 4.0 and 4.1. Got to get a drink first. Okay? He's made his big point, and here's his application. How does he begin that in your version of the Bible? In my ESV, he says, beware. How does he say it in yours? Give me a different word. Is there a different one out there? Be careful. Take heed. Ooh, I like that. Take heed. It's got a pirate kind of connotation to it. Hey! He says, beware, he says. Warning, Will Robinson. Therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. He says, look, you scoffers. This is what the prophet said. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days. A work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Paul charged his hearers to beware. If they rejected Jesus Christ, the words or judgments of the prophets would come upon them. That's what he's saying. He then cited from Habakkuk 1.5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days. A work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Those words were spoken about God's judgment that was coming on Judah. God was going to use the wicked Chaldeans as his instrument to bring severe judgment on wicked Judah. Paul used it to illustrate the destruction uh, that the Old Testament pledges to sinners who refuse to repent and submit to the Lord. MacArthur comments... The choice with which Paul left his audience is the choice everyone faces, every person. Accepting the salvation offered in Jesus Christ brings forgiveness of sin, freedom, and eternal bliss. Rejecting it brings judgment and eternal damnation. God's grace and love do not cancel his justice and holy hatred of sin. Paul warned him. Now what happened next? You with me still? <laughs> yep. Matt, if you count on Matt, he's right there. Yep. I'm ahead of you, Pastor Phil. I'm in Revelation right now. Slow down. What happened next, my friends? How did the hearers respond to Paul's sermon and warnings? Here's their response. Look at verses 42 to 43. 
It says, as they went out, speaking to Paul and Barnabas, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. They liked it. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So Paul and Barnabas attempted to leave the synagogue right after Paul wrapped up his sermon, right? Tried to get out of there. Notice how there was no sinner's prayer offered. Recite after me, Gentiles and Jews. Pray this little prayer. Blah, 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 blah. You notice it there? Finish the sermon. They bounced. Notice how they did not invite people to raise their hands and walk the aisle. Oh, what were they thinking? Notice how no communications cards were filled out and no classes were offered. Well, if you just prayed to receive the Lord and put your hand up, we want you to get signed up and come to the you-don't-know-jack-diddly-squat-about-Christianity class. No, what happened was Paul preached and then he and Barnabas walked out of the synagogue. Why? I'll tell you why. Because they trusted in the power and work of the Holy Spirit. Because of their trust in the Holy Spirit, they felt no need to use some man-made mechanism that would, in their minds, produce immediate results. You know why so many pastors utilize the sinner's prayer in these tactics today? They do so because they do not trust in the power and work of the Holy Spirit. If those things were to be used, we would see them in Scripture and their absence. Now, if you ask these pastors who, you know, hey, the reason why you do these things, could it be because you don't trust in the power and work of God and, you know, you've got to come up with these things? If you ask them that, they're not going to say, well, I don't trust God. No pastor's going to admit to that. His church is done. No way. They say, I use the sinner's prayer because I want to help people get saved. Sounds good. Sounds noble. What they fail to realize, however, is that the sinner's prayer doesn't save anyone. And I'll take it further by saying that, that the one thing the sinner's prayer is good at is providing people with a false assurance of salvation. I'm saved because I prayed the prayer when I was 12, 22, or 34. And we say to some of these folks that make these boasts and claims, but you live like an unrepentant sinner. No repentance, no confession, no faith that produces good godly works. And again they say, but I prayed the prayer. The sinner's prayer is like the get out of jail free card in Monopoly. I live my life, I go around the board, and when God calls me to account, I'll present my get out of jail free card by reminding him of the prayer I did. He will then set me free to frolic in heaven. If you're trusting in a prayer you recited for your salvation, do you have any idea what the Lord is going to say to you when you're standing in his presence in the future? Away from me, I never knew you. Now I'm going to run with this a little bit. I hope you're ready to jog. I hope you're warmed up and stretched out. Let me run with this a little bit. And listen to me very carefully. If you put your trust 
and doing good deeds, you have a false assurance of salvation. If you put your trust in religion, you have a false assurance of salvation. If you put your trust in money and possessions, you have a false assurance of salvation. If you put your trust in the sacraments, you have a false assurance of salvation. Some people believe I got baptized, so I'm saved. I take the Lord's Supper all the time, so I got to be saved because I do those things. If you put your trust in the church, you, you know, I go to church, you have a false assurance of salvation. If you put your trust in the sinner's prayer, you have a false assurance of salvation. Did you hear me? According to the Bible alone, salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Misplaced trust will result in horrendous eternal consequences. If we trust in anything or anyone other than Jesus, we will be damned to hell forever. Period. The price Jesus paid for salvation, for the salvation of sinners, for the elect, is worthy of our complete trust, faith, and devotion. To offer our trust, faith, and devotion to anything or anyone other than Jesus in terms of our salvation is to bring upon ourselves everlasting destruction and sorrow. That is why the author of Hebrews wrote this in Hebrews 2, 1 to 3. He said, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, speaking of the gospel, lest we drift away from it. He says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a, a just retribution. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The author asked this great question of Hebrews. He said, and some think it's Paul, Barnabas, whoever. He asked this question. He said, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I'll give you the answer. We will not escape the justice and wrath of God if we neglect the great salvation of the Lord. Our transgressions will be counted against us and we will pay for our disobedience forever through torment and suffering. Now some laugh and scoff at this. Ha! They laugh and they, and they scoff at it and they joke around and they play games. But Jesus warned those who do not take these things seriously in Luke 16, 19 to 31. Didn't we just hear that read? That's where your scripture reading came from today. What had happened in that text? Jesus told the story of a man who died and went to Hades or hell. The flames and heat were so intense that he cried out for a drop of water. The man begged for relief, but his requests were denied. The man then pleaded for someone to go and warn his brothers who were still alive, but that request was denied as well. The passage also describes a great chasm between Hades and paradise or heaven. The great chasm cannot be traversed, it cannot be crossed by people on either side, but those in Hades on the hell side, they can see what's happening on the other side in paradise. 
They can see the celebrating. They can see the feasting. They can see the joy. They can see the happiness. They can see the bliss. They can see the elation. Those who go to hell for rejecting the great salvation of the Lord will be made to watch the saints enjoy their salvation. For them, it will be like being stuck outside of a party that they cannot enter no matter what, while in the meanwhile being tormented. We need to heed the author of Hebrews and Jesus' warnings, friends. For every proclamation of the gospel and the forgiveness and freedom that's in Scripture, there is a warning that follows it. Listen, receive by faith, repent. Do not jettison what has been said. Do not abandon. Do not throw away. Believe. Repent. Now look again with me at 42 and 43. Notice how the, we're back in 13, 42 to 43, notice how the preliminary response to the gospel was very positive and favorable, right? You see it there. Hey, come back next week. That was bomb. Man, that was the best sermon I've heard yet. I've been listening to these guys over here with the weird things on their hats for about two years now. And boy, they didn't bang it away like you did. That was intense. I'm coming back to this church. Are you coming back? Please, here's $20. I mean, people were like, woo! First response, positive and favorable. They were intrigued by what they had heard. The people followed Paul and Barnabas and begged them to return on the next Sabbath day to preach the gospel again. Man, that was good stuff. Some of the Jews and devout converts, the more religious folks, even urged them to continue in the grace of God. Man, these brothers have got the grace of God all over them. Continue, my brothers. But most of this was short-lived. Look at verses 44 to 45. Party pooper. 44, they came back. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Really? The whole city of Pisidian Antioch? Almost the whole place? Almost all of Turlock came down? Yeah. It says, but, I hate those buts, but, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was being spoken or what was spoken by Paul. And it says reviling him. Oh, man. The text says almost the whole city came out to hear the word of the Lord. Paul was obviously one heck of a preacher, right? Woo, man, he blew it out. The Spurgeon of his day. The greater Spurgeon, that is. But some of the visitors came again or onlookers or whoever got jealous at the sight of all the people the jews or religious leaders were the ones who got jealous filled with jealousy it says in the text they began to contradict paul as he preached the gospel there's nothing worse than when somebody starts chattering in the out there oh they just started contradicting well he said this but let me tell you the real truth brother they just started contradicting him it was those Jews, they were filled with jealousy. Now last time a person did this to Paul, he ended up blind. <laughs> right? You remember back at the beginning of this chapter? Who went blind? Elimus. 
Remember Bar-Jesus? Remember a.k.a. Elimus, the astrologer of Cyprus? He contradicted Paul during his sermon, and the Lord blinded him. Now notice how the Jews had, and we'll get to something here, notice how the Jews had just done the very thing Paul warned them not to do back in verse 40. They're doing it. Take heed, don't, right? Beware, don't do this, lest the words of the prophets would come true about you. He warned them, they're doing it here. So much for the warning. Paul said, in essence, don't be the ones the prophets talked about. Don't scoff and become astounded and perish. Don't reject the word, the work God is doing in your midst, the word and work. Don't, don't reject what's happening right here, right now. Why didn't they heed Paul's warning? Didn't Paul make it clear? Sure he did. The text gives us the answer. It says that jealousy drove them to reject Paul's warning. There was something deeper here though, friends. Jealousy is caused by something else, isn't it? That something else is pride. Pride caused them to think that they were the ones who were worthy to have a multitude come and listen to them preach. Pride drove them to think that their church, their worship service, and their preaching was far better than that of Paul and Barnabas. They looked at all these gathered people and became infuriated. Why did their church explode in one week and we've been toiling away and we've got eight people? They may have thought to themselves, we're the chosen ones, we're the qualified ones, we're the religious ones, not these two yahoos that follow Jesus of Nazareth, these imbeciles from the West. They also believed, no doubt, here's where the real pride came in, they believed, these Jews, these religious Jews, they believed that their religion and good deeds were far superior to the gospel of Paul and Barnabas. They took great offense at the offer of God's grace in Jesus Christ. That is what religious people do, friends. They become offended when they are told that they cannot earn their way and that they must receive the free offer of God's grace in Jesus Christ by faith. They get ticked. Don't tell me I can't earn my way. Don't tell me that all that I've been doing is worth nothing. Don't you dare say that to me. Some people are willing to kill over that. You think about what Paul did the Sabbath before, just a week earlier. What did he do? He told these people that forgiveness... Freedom was in Christ, not in their works, not in obedience to the law. In one fell swoop, Paul dashed to pieces everything the Jews had been taught since birth and everything the God-fearers had learned since their conversion to Judaism. Filled with pride-driven jealousy, the Jews snapped and began to contradict Paul and Barnabas. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Do you remember from the Gospels how the Roman governor Pontius Pilate was hesitant to try, try and convict Jesus of a crime because he figured out why the Jews brought Jesus to him in the first place. He knew that they were driven by envy, it says in the gospel. What is envy? Envy is a form of jealousy. The Jews were filled with jealousy, envy, jealous envy, and rallied against Jesus during that particular moment, stirring up the crowds to turn against him. And years later, here in Galatia, they did the same thing against Paul and Barnabas. The same thing. What about today, 2,000 years later? Jesus is reviled by Jews today, just as he was 20 centuries ago. That same 
Pride and jealousy drives their animosity against him. Now, how did Paul and Barnabas respond to their opposition, to their contradiction? Did they call for them to be made blind? Like Elimus, like Bar Jesus? Look at 4 6. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Boom. Paul and Barnabas did not call for their sight to be removed, but they rebuked them nonetheless. Speaking to the Jews, they said, we were commanded to share the gospel with you first. Here's another, and we've covered them earlier in prior sermons and texts. Here's another example of how Paul was obedient to his commissioning. The Lord had commissioned him to minister to Jews first and then Gentiles, non-Jews second. He said, since you tossed out the gospel, is what he's saying, you have judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Look, we are taking the gospel to the Gentiles. That's what he says. Paul makes an interesting point here, though. The Jews had thrust the gospel aside. They rejected it. In doing so, they rendered themselves unworthy of eternal life. Why did they thrust the gospel aside? Why does anyone thrust the gospel aside? I've already mentioned some of the reasons. Religious pride, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, jealousy, envy, what have you, and so on and so forth. Those who are filled with those things reject the gospel because they see no need for it. They are depending on themselves. They are relying on their good deeds. And God opposes people like that. As stated in James 4, 6, God is what? He's opposed to who? The proud. But he does something. He gives grace to the humble. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are poor in spirit are those who see themselves as spiritually bankrupt and completely devoid of any goodness or good works and ultimately helpless apart from the grace of God. People like that are open to the gospel. But prideful people who rely on themselves cast the gospel away like a dirty napkin. They then what? Judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. In a way, they render a guilty verdict against themselves. Guilty of rejecting the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is an example right here in this text of human responsibility. It is true that men will never incline themselves towards God without the aid of God's grace. That is a scriptural fact, but it is also true that men are responsible for their sins no matter what. We see that in the text here so clearly. Now look at 4.7. He continues, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul basically declared the Jews may have thrust the gospel aside, but God's plan of salvation is also for the Gentiles because he commanded us that the message of salvation be brought to the ends of the earth. Paul said, in effect, the good news is also for you, O Gentiles. And there were Gentiles present. 
the whole town had come out. Now, how did they respond to this? Look at 48 and 49. And when the Gentiles heard this, oh, man, look at that. You see it? Wow, man, I was about to give up hope, right? Oh, man, they proclaimed the gospel in this amazing sermon that I could never preach on my best day. And look at that. They turned their backs. They throw it out like a dirty napkin. But look at this. And when the Gentiles, non-Jews, when they heard it, people like you and I, you might be Jewish, I don't know, but I'm not. And when the Gentiles, people like me, heard this, it says they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as, here, look at this, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Look at that. And then it says, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. How amazing. The Gentiles rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord. They were as happy as clams. I love the way the Holy Spirit works, right? While the Jews were stewing, the Holy Spirit was brewing in the Gentiles. You see it? Oh, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit works. This person's going, that isn't for me. This person's going, I overheard you, man. I want to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It's just the way the Spirit works. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. The text says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What do we have here? We have right here an example of sovereign election. God appointed many of those Gentiles to eternal life. And those whom he appointed in that particular group came to faith just as he had planned. That's what your Bible says. I didn't make that up. John Calvin didn't make that up. Get over it. It's what the word teaches. As many as were appointed believed. But it's interesting, though, just a few moments ago, we had human responsibility, right? Well, in the Word of God, they don't do that. They do this. To us, they go, ah! But it's there. There were people there that God had appointed to salvation who came to faith. It's amazing. It's right there. And then it says, here's the real big fruit of it. The Word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Wow. The Gentiles became evangelists. They became evangelists. They went about gossiping the gospel, just as we saw in Acts 2. They went about talking about Jesus and the resurrection and their faith in these things. A revival began to break out. Now look at 50. The enemy attacks once again. But the Jews, same people, religious Inside of the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Drove them right out of there. Now while the word of God was spreading like wildfire throughout Pisidian Antioch, the Jews put together a plan to drive Paul and Barnabas out of town. They went to the most respected women of the synagogue and then to the political leaders of the city and convinced them that Paul and Barnabas were up to no good. They made it sound like Paul and Barnabas were a threat. Paul and Barnabas were not given the benefit of the doubt or a fair hearing. Instead, the religious and political leaders stirred up persecution against them. The persecution became so intense that Paul and Barnabas had to leave the district or Pisidian Antioch. 
They had to get out of there, man. It was crazy. I mean, it was a, it was a riot. It was riotous. It makes me laugh when I think about evangelism today and how people say, well, you know, what you got to do is you got to get in there and make friends with that guy and then you got to earn the right to speak the gospel to him. Well, yeah, that's exactly what they did in the text here. This is riot evangelism. The whole dang town was fired up. When these two guys went into a town, they didn't go, well, let's hang out here for about two years, earn the right to speak the truth, and then, you know, we'll see what God does. They came right in, preached the gospel, all hell broke loose. People got saved. That's when all hell really breaks loose. When the word makes manifest through the Holy Spirit in the life of a person, people change, they begin to live differently from everyone else, and the ones who are living according to the word get ticked off and don't like it and see it as a threat, and those guys are weirdos, and then they begin to persecute them. Well, we're looking at riot evangelism here, man. This whole town blew up. Boom! Now look at verses 51 to 52, and I'm not opposed to getting to know people and you know, you don't just say, hey, how are you doing? I see that you're buying a six-pack of Pepsi or in their line at the grocery store. Jesus died for your sin! You know, that's dumb. It's good to get to know people and at your workplace and all that to be soft and gentle. with. They don't have any concept of these things. But when Paul and Barnabas went out, man, they went out. And they just, man, all stuff exploded. Look at 51. In 5-2, here's what they did. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Love that verse. Love it. Paul and Barnabas shook the dust from their feet. Okay? That act was of ominous symbolism. When Jesus previously had sent out the 70 to go out and do ministry, he charged them in Luke 10, 10 to 12. He said, but whatever you, whenever you enter a town, okay, whenever you go into a town and they do not receive you, okay, they don't receive the gospel, what you proclaim, he says, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And Jesus said, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Whew. MacArthur said this, the Jews of Paul's day were scrupulous uh, not to bring Gentile dust back into Israel. By their act, Paul and Barnabas were saying in effect that they considered the Jews at Pisidian Antioch no better than pagans. There could be no stronger condemnation. Those Jews were left in their obstinate unbelief. Now on the contrary... In verse 52, we see that the what? The disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. You see that? The whole text, it's like contrast, right? Opposition, salvation. Opposition, salvation. Joy, hatred. Anger, peace. I mean, it's, just, it's just how it is. And, and where does joy and those things lie? On the side of salvation. Not when men are left in their sin. It's amazing. They shook the dust off their feet and did that. And then MacArthur said what he said. And then on the contrary, in verse 52, we see that the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Who was Luke referring to here? 
Who were the disciples? Paul and Barnabas? No. He is referring to the new Christians at Pisidian Antioch. Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel, people got saved, and a church was planted. And when Paul and Barnabas left for Iconium, which was about 80 miles southeast, southeast and is still in the province of Galatia, when they left that province, or when they stayed in Galatia but left Pisidian Antioch and went to Iconium, what did they do? They left behind two completely different groups in Pisidian Antioch. They left behind the rejecting, prejudiced, hate-filled Jews, and they left behind the joy and Holy Spirit-filled believers. It's amazing. And that's chapter 13. Isn't that a great chapter, isn't it? Isn't it amazing? Why is it amazing? Because God is amazing. I'm not amazing. God is amazing. His word is amazing. This is historical stuff we're reading. These are the things that happened so many centuries ago. And God is in the business of doing these things today. He's still saving people. And there are still people that's hearts are becoming more and more hardened against the gospel. Just as those Jews were then. It exists today. Who are you? Are you a person of faith? Or are you like those old Jews, man? Just hated the idea of giving up their effort. Giving up their works. You hate the idea that you can't earn your way. You know, it's embedded in our fallen nature to try to earn our way. But in the spirit, we are released from that and freed from that. And we can rest solely in the good grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith. Who are you this morning? Are you a person of faith filled with joy in the Holy Spirit? Are you like that group back in Pisidian Antioch? like the other group if you like those early disciples there that were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit I say rejoice God has done a great work for you if you're not I encourage you to consider what you've heard you know who you are more importantly God knows who you are Jesus is the way the truth and the life no other way to heaven except through him he came and lived perfect life perfect righteousness he offers he died taking upon sin the sin of people like me he took that sin he's perfect he took that nasty ugly disgusting vile sin the sin of a vast multitude he took upon himself he actually the scripture says became sin he who knew no sin became sin lived a perfect life earning that perfect righteous standing with the father took the sin on him was slaughtered like a lamb and died on a cross beaten to a pulp died bled out was placed in a rich man's tomb settling the accounts with the father and then on the third day he rose. If you believe that, friend, you will be saved. If you're believing and trusting in that today, you are saved. Hallelujah. What we're going to have is a, a time of communion now. 
We will find the Lord during this time. We've heard from him and we will find him in these elements in a spiritual sense. He took bread and wine and he divided them up on the night of his betrayal and arrest. He said, take these things in remembrance of me. Take these things in remembrance of what I'm about to do, dying and resurrecting for you. We take these things in remembrance of what he did. And one of the most important things that we could ever remember when we do communion is that we would remember that only the work of Jesus saves us, that we don't save ourselves. And those elements represent his finished, accomplished work. We're not earners, man. We're sinners saved by grace, and we live according to the grace that he's given us. And he's given every child of God, every one of his child, a measure of grace, a measure of faith. We live knowing that because of Jesus, we have our sins forgiven, not because of what we could do. And we know because we have Jesus that we are freed from bondage to the law. There's a paradox in Christianity. He saves us from the law so that we can obey the law. It's amazing. So this moment of worship, we're going to be remembering what he did. We're going to spend some time confessing our sin. And let me warn you, this is for the saints alone. If you're not in Christ, do not take these elements. Okay, let's enjoy this time with our Lord and Savior. Take these elements, remembering what he did. Confess your sin. Enjoy this time. Apply what you've heard and learned today. Ask him to be with you and he will. Ask him to guide you and he will. Ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit to give you power over sin. He will. Father, we thank you for this time. And I just, I, don't, I just, I'm beside myself right now, Lord. I love your word so much. It's, it's amazing. The power that's there. When you attend your word with the Holy Spirit, as you often do, it's just amazing what can happen. I'm just amazed at how you've worked in my life. And I know you're at work in these folks' lives. God, I pray that if there would any, be anyone here that is not yet in Christ, that you would bring him into Christ at this very moment. That this person would realize that they're in sin. They need to turn from their self-sufficiency in sin and put their faith and trust in you, Jesus Christ, the only one that can save them. Cause that to happen, Father. And help us as the saints, Lord, those who already know you, to worship you. We can't do a darn thing without you. We can't even worship you, right? We want to worship you during this time, continue to worship you and enjoy you. Know that you're present. Know that you're, you're present in communion. That those elements represent who you are. That we're actually taking you in, in a way. By faith. Help us to do that. Help us to confess our sin, too. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said.